Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, the book of Matthew, chapter 6, continued. We'll continue in Matthew chapter 6, directing our focus upon the Lord's Prayer of verses 9 through 13. Now, leading up to this prayer example that Christ presented to those listening to his Sermon on the Mount, he gave his listeners a couple of do's and don'ts concerning prayer in general. Now, first of all, he says, don't pray in a manner that is designed and intended to draw attention to yourself. Self-aggrandizement, making oneself out to be especially pious, is the issue. Now, this kind of a mindset is a perversion of what prayer is to be, and it's what the pagans do. Second, instead we should pray privately. That is, prayer is meant to be something personal, personal and intimate between you and the Lord. Prayer is a means and a privilege to honor God, to communicate with Him. And third, don't babble on and on using fabricated mantras and ritualistic phrases that you say and you repeat almost unconsciously. One also doesn't have to explain to God what you're asking Him in extreme detail that results in lengthy prayers and hopes that the longer that you pray, the more God will hear you. Prayer and God simply do not work like that. Yeshua concludes with why eloquence and wordiness are not needed. Verse 8 says, it's because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now, here is a statement of God's immutable and universal omniscience. As humans, we can observe things as they happen and we can draw conclusions. But only the Lord knows our every thought. He knows our every need, usually before we do. This is both a comfort and a warning. Therefore, to start verse 9, Jesus says, instead, pray like this. Now, please notice that he didn't say, pray this. When he says to pray like this, he means similarly. He is not giving us a formula to be mechanically repeated, but rather it's a pattern or a template to follow. Some people, when they pray, pray only the Lord's Prayer as though this is a divinely mandated Christian mantra. There's certainly nothing wrong with praying it, and especially when one is with a group of believers so that everyone knows this prayer by heart. So it's wonderful for everyone to pray it out loud together. So let's read the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to discuss its pattern and what we're being shown by it. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 9. 
If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's on page 1230, 1230, starting with verse 9. You, therefore, pray like this, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the food we need today. Forgive us what we've done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. And do not lead us into hard testing, but keep us safe from the evil one. For kingship, power, and glory are yours forever. Amen. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their offenses, your Heavenly Father will not forgive yours. Now we'll move on into other verses here shortly. But first, I want to briefly review and then supplement what I said last week about the opening words of the Lord's Prayer. Those words are our Father, not our God, not our Lord, not anything else. Our Father. Our Father has a specific meaning biblically and to the Jewish people. First, the use of the term Our Father is put forth in the concept of sonship. That is, only a true son has the right to call the one in authority over him Father. When a person is a son, versus a servant or a follower, the relationship changes. That person's status is elevated, and his or her position then becomes greatly enhanced. For one thing, inheritance that comes from what the Father owns and rules becomes a possibility for us. In the divine heavenly sphere, the term our Father is used to denote the spiritual Father of all things that exists, seen and unseen, the Creator, Jehovah. In the earthly sphere, our Father is used to denote the human ancestral biological Father of the Hebrew people, Abraham. It is actually a term that's used rather rarely in the Old Testament. Ironically, it is used much more in the New Testament. The Gospels record 65 instances in which Jesus uses the term Father to refer to God. John uses it a hundred times, clearly in the context of prayer. No Jew prayed to Abraham, so the Our Father is of course directed to God in Heaven. Now just as logically and rationally we can know that when Jesus refers to the Father or our Father, He cannot be referring to Himself in any way, shape, or form. Jesus is never referred to as the Father of anything. Rather, Yeshua's spiritual and physical identity is as the Son in relation to the Father. Who is the Father? He is El Shaddai, Yudhe Vavhe, Yehovah, 
more often called Yahweh, or in English, Jehovah. Yehovah is not Yeshua. <clears throat> the question is, are we also praying to Jesus when we pray to our Father? And clearly Christ instructs that it is the Father to whom we should pray. Never does He, nor any of His disciples, nor any writer of the New Testament suggest that we should switch from praying to the Father to praying to Christ. Even so, this matter is actually the basis of quite the ongoing theological debate. The side of the debate that says, yes, we are also praying to Jesus when we pray to God in heaven, or that because Christians should pray directly to Jesus, it admits that there is no direct scriptural quote to back up such a notion. Rather, it is a church doctrine that has been derived from yet another church doctrine called the Trinity Doctrine, which among many mainstream denominations says that Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal, and they are unified in such a way as to be indistinguishable. I don't wish to try to explain the mysterious nature of the unity of God much unity of God much further other than to say this despite what you might think you are hearing me say I firmly believe and advocate that while Jesus the Father and the Holy Spirit are all divine attributes of who God is in his totality it is undeniable that they are spoken of in the Bible as identifiable, separately named entities, possessing different attributes and purposes. They are not depicted as or said to be co-equal in authority or knowledge. There is a definite hierarchy of authority of the Godhead in the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation. And the Father is always at the top of that hierarchy. He directs the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now one of the things that is so hard for us to deal with is the choice of words and human concepts to use when we're trying to assign them to the essence and the substance of God. God gives us language. He gives us the ability to speak in order to better understand Him and to form relationships with one another that go way beyond mere animalistic instincts. Thus, we must always take human terms, human terms like Father and Son, only so far when using them to describe God's features and attributes. However, by using those terms, which by their very nature are dependent upon the culture that they sprang from, we can get a better idea of how to discern who God is, how He operates, and His instructions to us. So as the centuries pass and as new cultures rise and evolve and then disappear, 
we must always remember to keep these terms and relationships we read of in the Bible embedded in their cultural thought, in their cultural era from which they came. It's when we remove that cultural and historical element from God's Word that the mistakes and the misunderstandings occur such that then false doctrines are the result. The scriptures were written by Hebrews, and they were written from a Hebrew cultural standpoint. Thus, when they employ the use of the term the Son, it's understood in a Hebrew culture that a son, especially a firstborn or the only begotten son, holds a special elite place in relation to their sons to that son's father that son has the right of inheritance not only of the father's possessions but also of his authority and while that father is still living he can and often does name his son as his agent an agent that speaks for him and can be given a measure of authority as defined and presented to him by his father. It was and remains a Middle Eastern saying that when such agent status is given to a son, then when speaking to the son, it's as if you are speaking to the father. It is in a similar way that we must think of Yeshua in relation to his father. It is a lens through which we must interpret the New Testament, the New Testament passage that says, Whoever has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father. If we isolate and we lift out that well-worn phrase from its Hebrew culture, from its context of the first century, and then we try to place it directly into the Western Gentile culture of the 21st century, then it sounds much like saying that uh, Yeshua is saying that he and the Father are identical twins, or that they are one and the same, such that perhaps Yeshua is but a physical apparition of the invisible Father, or that Yeshua is the newer and the younger God replacing the older God, Yehovah. But now let's hear it in its biblical context, from the Apostle John, the book of John 14, verses 6 through 10, we read this, Yeshua say, said, I am the way, and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because you have known me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him. In fact, you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Yeshua replied to him, Have I been with you so long without you knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm united with the Father, and the Father united with me? What I'm telling you, I am not saying on my own initiative. The Father living in me is doing His own works. 
Embedded in this passage is the Jewish and the Middle Eastern cultural concept of the relationship between a father and a son. This is reflected in Yeshua replying to Philip, The father living in me is doing his own works. Yeshua fits the mold to a T as his father's agent who carries out his father's works. He is the Father's right hand. He is the Father's only begotten Son. The Son has completely adopted His Father's will. The Father, even though He is still living, has designated His Son, Yeshua, as His agent on earth, and in doing so has given Him a defined measure of authority. Thus it can be said that the Father is living and doing His works through His Son, Jesus Christ. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son, and while the Son is said to carry all the authority of his Father to rule the kingdom, this is in no way intended to say that the Son has replaced the Father, or that the Son has usurped his Father, or that the Father is now out of the picture, or that the Father has given up ultimate authority over his Son. What I'm telling you is not doctrine. This is Bible. Now, importantly, <clears throat> the thoughts and the concepts of the Lord's Prayer were not new to Yeshua's listeners. They were already an ordinary part of Jewish religious society in, Ye in uh, Christ's day. Many Jewish prayers began, Avenu Shabbat Shamaim, our Father in Heaven. This opening phrase further out Matthew as a Jewish believer. But the lack of this phrase in Luke's version of it outs Luke as a Gentile believer. Luke's much abbreviated version of something like the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11.2 opens merely with Father. So, it should not surprise us that the Jewish Jesus would use a rather standard opening for a Jewish prayer, and that the Jewish Matthew would of course record it that way. While that same standard opening would not have been so familiar or even noticed by the Gentile Luke. Now David Stern points out that the next two lines of the Lord's Prayer are very similar to the opening words of the synagogue prayer called the Kaddish, which says, Magnified and sanctified be His great name throughout the world, which He has created according to His will, and may He establish His kingdom in your lifetime. Compare this to the Lord's Prayer. May your name be kept holy, sanctified. May your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth. So the Lord's Prayer and the Kaddish express nearly identical thoughts. Yet as we go further into the prayer, we find another, another Christian theological debate develop from it. It concerns whether the nature of the prayer is expressing a future hope, pointing to the end times and beyond. Scholars call this the eschatological, eschatological view. Or whether it is expressing a present hope with a view to the here and now. As nearly always, these theological differences demand an absolute, 
and they are discerned from the Western Gentile mindset. That is, the Lord's Prayer is either a 100% future view or it's a 100% present view. This is not at all needed. And it's not at all what Yeshua had in mind. Rather, we have here two simultaneous meanings that are not different in substance. They're only different in time frame. That is, both meanings are true at certain times in redemption history. Hebrew thought, you see, allows for such an approach. When Christ says, May your kingdom come, this refers to both the present and the future, because that's the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And yet also notice whose kingdom it is. Whose kingdom is it? It is yours, meaning the Father's. Yeshua our Savior may well rule over it, but it belongs to the Father. And whatever authority Yeshua has over it has been given to Him by His Father. The issue of the Kingdom now we, coming we discussed before. The Kingdom is both present and it is future. The Kingdom of Heaven, which by the way is synonymous with the Kingdom of God, had a definite beginning point. Listen to Matthew 11, verses 11-13. through 13. Yes, I tell you that among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than Yochanan, John the Immerser. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the time of Yochanan the Immerser until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence. Yes, violent ones are trying to snatch it away. For all the prophets and the Torah prophesied until Yochanan, John. So when John the Baptist began his mission to declare the coming of the Lord, that was the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. In the Gospel of Luke, we see the kingdom of heaven addressed slightly differently. In Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, the Parshim, that is the Pharisees, asked Yeshua when the kingdom of God would come. The kingdom of God, he answered, does not come with visible signs, nor will people be able to say, oh look, it's here, or it's over there, because you see, the kingdom of God is among you. While I'm not in total agreement with that particular translation, I am as far as it regards the tenses. That is, the kingdom of God is among you. It is present right now. So in the Lord's Prayer, the coming of the kingdom doesn't mean it hasn't come yet. Rather, it is like the Lord's parable of the mustard seed. In Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32, Yeshua put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man takes and sows in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows up, it's larger than any garden plant and it becomes a tree so that the birds flying about can come and nest in its branches. Now in time, I will talk more concerning this parable and explain in depth the use and meaning of parables. 
However, a fundamental principle of parables is that they use everyday cultural thoughts and objects and activities in a simplistic and a general way in order to teach the Torah. And when we look at the mustard seed parable, it draws a similarity between how the kingdom of heaven appears on earth versus how a mustard seed grows. And the idea is that the mustard seed is among the tiniest of seeds, and so its life as a plant starts as a minuscule, nearly imperceptible form. Now, one would think that such a tiny seed would only grow up into a tiny plant. But in fact, a mustard seed grows into a big plant over time until it is so large that birds can actually make nests in its branches. So the kingdom of heaven has already come, although it's so small that it is hardly noticeable in Christ's time. However, the ultimate fullness of it, and to all that God intends for it, is indeed in the future. Thus, in the Peshat interpretation sense, the kingdom of heaven on earth is a present reality. The fruits of it are present for us to see if we have the eyes to see it. And as the Kaddish prayer expresses, hopefully everyone alive, every Jew alive was the meaning at the time, will be part of it in the here and now. Yet, in the Ramez interpretation sense, the kingdom of heaven speaks of a later time when all of God's creatures, worldwide and without exception, will bow down before Him. They will hallow His holy name. It's about a time when the kingdom enters into its perfection and its completeness, and we along with it. And that time was future to Matthew's Gospel, and it's still future but nearer for us. <clears throat> now, I want to take just a moment to remind you of something I taught long ago when I first taught on the Torah. The English word holy is in its original biblical Hebrew kadosh. Kadosh. And kadosh, holy, and sanctified are all equivalent words. So, to be sanctified means to be holy-fied, that is, to be made holy. The essence of this word kadosh is that something is set apart from all else. So, since God is inherently holy, His very substance is holy, He is also the standard for holy, then when the Lord's Prayer says, May your name be kept holy, as in the complete Jewish Bible, or as in the more familiar King James Version, hallowed be your name. The idea is that not that God's name isn't currently holy, it is that among the minds and the souls of all humanity, God would finally to be held holy to each and every one of us. The coming of the Kingdom of Heaven with John the Baptist begins that process which is culminated 
with the second coming of Christ, the destruction of evil and of wicked humans, and then his 1,000 year reign. So up to now, these verses mouthed by Yeshua address the adoration and the glorification of God, which should be the overriding thought behind all of our prayers. It also expresses a hope for God's will to be done in our lives. Now the issue of God's will being done, you know, that's a tough one, especially as it concerns prayer. See, usually when we go to God in prayer, it's because we want something. We want something. Perhaps it expresses the needs of others. Perhaps something for ourselves. But how can we know for certain that what we're asking is in His will? I wish I could give you a pat exp explanation for that, but I can't. However, much like Yeshua using a parable to help illustrate His meaning when defining something in the spiritual world and, and in the future, it can be so very difficult for us to get a handle on, I think that the instance of Christ praying before the day of His execution, I think that can help us to best understand what it means for us to pray in God's will. In Luke 22 verses 39 to 44 we read this, On leaving, Yeshua went as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the Talmudim, His disciples, followed Him. And when He arrived, He said to them, Pray that you won't be put to the test. And He went about a stone's throw from them, He kneeled down and He prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Still, not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven giving him strength, and in great anguish he prayed more intensely, so that his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Notice that he starts his prayer with Father, and then takes his petition to him. And Yeshua's petition is, Please take this cup from me. Now, this cup was simply an expression that meant what he was what was destined for him that was just about to happen. And what was about to happen was his arrest, his brutal torture, and then grim ex uh, crucifixion. Now, is suffering and dying something Jesus wanted to do? Clearly not. The Holy Spirit in him knew that this was precisely what he was born to do, and that all of God's plans for redemption depended upon it. And yet, he was a human being. He was a human being who knew pain. He saw death up close and personal, and he wasn't seeking it. And so he had great trepidation over what was coming. He prayed so intensely about this. His spirit in heated conflict with his flesh. That we are told the blood capillaries, I suppose on his scalp and forehead, burst and he began sweating blood. So his own will was twofold. Father, I pray I don't have to do this. But he also prayed, 
not his own will, but rather the will of his Father be done. That is, if there's no other way for Jesus than the cross, then God's will would overcome Jesus' own human instinct and will to save himself. Now, what believer, having been given a very serious diagnosis from a doctor, perhaps a life-threatening one, wouldn't go to the Father and plead for healing? And yet, are we willing to accept not being healed as the Father's will? See, here's a tougher one yet. Imagine your two-year-old child is found to have a terminal and painful illness and you go to the Father asking for his or her life to be spared. Are you willing to accept it as the Father's will if that child suffers and dies? Over the years I've seen several people in similar predicaments who are not healed, who are not relieved of some awful predicament and then who walk away from God because of it. But Yeshua's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is what it means to pray in God's will. You ask for the thing you want, your will, even intensely. But at the same time, you place a higher priority on God's will being done as a matter of faith and trust. And when God's will doesn't match yours, you accept His and you glorify Him no matter the outcome. Why? Because indeed God's will was done on earth as it is done in heaven. And by the way, this does not mean that an outcome that leaves you in a bad way was somehow best for you, but you just don't realize it yet. Rather, in the Lord's Prayer, two things are emphasized. That God's kingdom would grow and thrive, and that His will would be done. Sometimes the very thing we dread the most is an unknowable part of bringing about His will and His kingdom Unfortunately, sometimes in ways we may never know. At least we won't know on this side of heaven. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, it shows us not just similar words and thoughts to pray, but also the attitude we are to pray in. Recall that just before Christ gave His instruction on what and on how to pray, He spent some time discussing motive and intent for our behavior. This is just an extension of that principle that goes into our prayer life. Now as we move to verse 11, Yeshua says that we should ask God for our daily bread. Now the Greek word used for bread is artos. It is used similarly to the way the Jews use the Hebrew word for bread, which is lechem. It has the dual meaning of bread, as in the baked product consisting of grain, water, and yeast, but it is also an expression, simply meaning food in general. Bread was the main dish at almost every meal for the common people, and so it doubled as the meaning for the entire meal. 
I think some preachers and Bible commentators work a little bit too hard trying to insert very deep meaning, when at least in the Peshat sense the meaning was plain. It is just as the complete Jewish Bible has it. It is a plea to God to provide food. Because having sufficient food each day was by no means a given for the average Jew. If this extends to anything deeper and broader, I see the prayer for food as perhaps representative of asking God to provide for the basics that all humans need to exist at least above the level that the beasts of the field live. The need for food and adequate shelter and clothing that's suitable for the purpose and the season is a very good reason to pray. <clears throat> now, one of the reasons that I think Yeshua included this plea for food in his prayer model is that he had deep concerns for the daily needs of people. He was a man of the people. He truly did feel their pain. He fed thousands using miraculous means simply because they were hungry and they needed food. He healed thousands of their illnesses and lamenesses also miraculously because there was almost no other means for their suffering to be alleviated. So much that he accomplished on earth was for human physical needs in the here and now, even though much of it was also for the future. He told his disciples to continue doing the same. Care, he said, for the people's physical and spiritual needs. Therefore, this lesson from what Yeshua showed to us should be apprehended simply. It is not wrong to pray for our material needs. <coughs> God knows our needs. In our time, it's not wrong to pray that God might give you the means to have a reliable car, or a sufficient house, or to get a good job in order to make enough money to have those things. I don't want to start a list of material things that are proper or improper to pray to the Lord for because the circumstances are too many. They vary too much. And for me, being the judge of it all, well, that's well above my pay grade. What I want us all to take from this is that God does care about our everyday human needs on earth, in our present lives. Because these lives, even in these, these flawed and imperfect fleshly tents, they have value to Him. He made us. He loves us. He has a purpose for us today, in the present, not only at the end of days, and then on into eternity. Well, starting in verse 12, is Yeshua's instruction to pray for our own forgiveness. Now, this principle was already well embedded in Jewish religious life. They even prayed rather standardized synagogue prayers that ask God for forgiveness of their wrongs. In one of the several so-called apocryphal books, we find the book of Ecclesiasticus, uh, let me try that again, the book of Ecclesiasticus, 
This is not the same as the book of Ecclesiastes, and it deals with forgiveness. This book was written between one and two centuries prior to the time of Christ. In chapter 28, we read this, Forgive your neighbor the wrong he has done, and then your sins will be pardoned when you pray. Does a man harbor anger against another, and yet seek healing from the Lord? Does he have no mercy toward a man like himself, and yet pray for his own sins? If he himself, being flesh, maintains wrath, who will make expiation for his sins? See, therefore we read, when we read what Yeshua is saying, our prayers ought to look like, and remember, he was speaking to Jews, he's not telling his audience that they've been doing it wrong, nor is he bringing some novel new way to think about prayer. He is teaching them old Torah-based do's and don'ts. He is reminding them mostly of things they've already been taught, but perhaps it's been relegated to unimportant or forgotten status altogether. At times, he is teaching them about things the Pharisee-led synagogues have taught them, but perhaps their teachings have been a few degrees off the mark and consist far too much of man-centered behaviors rather than God-centered inner intent and motive. The complete Jewish Bible of this verse tries to explain the meaning as the author sees it, but more literally it reads in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Luke has it a little differently. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. So that's why in various denominations, some will pray, forgive us our sins, while others will pray, forgive us our debts. The reality is that in the Hebrew culture of that era and, and earlier, there was this common connection between sins and debts. It was that sins brought on a debt owed to God. So sins expressed as debts, well that was usual and customary. In fact, the Lord used the concept of debt in His inspired words to help us understand His justice system. In Deuteronomy 15.2 we read this, here is how the Shemitah, the release, is to be done. Every creditor is to give up what he has loaned to his fellow member of the community. He is not to force his neighbor or relative to repay it, because Adonai's time of remission has been proclaimed. See, this, spot, this passage is speaking about the every 50-year cycle of Jubilee. It was always thought by the earliest Hebrew sages that this passage had a dual meaning, a Peshat and a Ramez sense to it. The Peshat is that indeed there is a God-ordained appointed time for release of debts owed among the Hebrew people, and God's people are to practice it just as it's ordained in the Torah. However, in the Ramez sense, 
It is speaking of the debt due to God because of our sins. And there is a future time when God remits that debt and declares it paid in full. In verse 12, Christ then also presents us with a dual meaning. He is speaking in the Peshat about the dealings between human beings in the here and now, and it having a direct effect on how God deals with us in the here and now. He sets up a direct quid pro quo. It is that since, in the Lord's Prayer, we are asking God to forgive us of our offenses against Him in proportion to how we forgive our fellow man for their offenses against us, then the bottom line is, we'll get as we give. If we forgive our fellow man for offending us, then God will forgive us. If we don't, He won't. But in the Remez, this is also speaking about the ultimate, the once-for-all forgiveness that comes through Christ's death on the cross. So as believers, then, is praying for forgiveness a thing of the past? That is, since our atonement is complete, is it almost wrong to pray for forgiveness because it's denying what Jesus did for us? No, it's not. Despite the claim of any theological doctrine, the biblical reality is that this is the prayer form that Christ Himself gave to us. And He says we should pray for forgiveness. It did not contain a sunset provision. There is no place in Holy Scripture that ever says to cease praying for forgiveness. It's my opinion that for the believer to continue to pray for forgiveness even though we have been forgiven is to keep reminding ourselves and confessing to God that we do continue to offend Him, even after we have our salvation. And in the prayer form that Messiah showed us, it also reminds us that we are to forgive those who have offended us. Now the example that we'll encounter later on in Matthew is a wonderful illustration of that provision. Listen to Matthew chapter 18 from verses 21 through 35. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Then Kepha, that's Peter, came up and said to him, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times? No, not seven times, answered Yeshua, but seventy times seven. Because of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king who decided to settle accounts with his deputies. Now right away they brought forward a man who owed him many millions. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all of his possessions be sold to pay off the debt. But the servant fell down before him and he said, Please be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. So out of pity for him, the master let him go and he forgave the debt. But as that servant was leaving, he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him some tiny sum. He grabbed him, he began to choke him, crying, Pay back what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell before him, and he begged, Oh, please, 
Be patient with me. I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown in jail till he could repay the debt. And when the other servants saw what happened, they were extremely distressed. And they went and they told their master everything that had taken place. Then the master summoned his servant. He said, well, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt just because you begged me to do it. Shouldn't you have had pity on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers for punishment until he paid back everything he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you. Unless you will forgive your brother from your hearts. Folks, this parable applies to all of Christ's followers. I, I don't know exactly how eternal society is going to be structured. But Yeshua makes it clear back in chapter 5, there will be a structure and a hierarchy. Because there will be greater and there will be lesser and each will experience eternity somewhat differently, even though they're all saved. There will be various criteria of intent and actual behavior that's going to determine where we each fit in that structure. With how little how or how much mercy to our fellow man being chief among all those criteria. We'll finish up the Lord's Prayer and move further into Matthew chapter 6 next time.